A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And the sponsorship of this episode, um, and this is part two about why um, you rabbis. So it's sponsored by a listener in honor of Moiri Virabi, Rav Herschel Schechter, who is the next chapter of historic Yu Rabbeim as he guides us with knowledge and care. So that is the sponsorship, and that brings us right into the topic. This is a long overdue topic. Um, The last time, part one, which was quite a bit of time ago, we covered um, Rav Shleiman Nassim Cutler, the first Rosh Hashiva of Rabbeinus HaKochanan. We touched on a little bit of Rav Revel. We spoke about Rav Meshachatzkis, the Lamjarov, but just now, recently, Erev Pesach was the yard site of Reb Chaim Heller, who that didn't, never really had a real official capacity in YU, but was um, gave gave regular uh, shiurim there for quite a bit of time in the 1940s and 50s. And of yesterday was Rav Salvechik's yard site, and of course he his name is synonymous with the place. And so it's an opportune time to go for part two of this series of, of Wayu Rebbein, which of course will eventually cover many more parts. So um, we'll start with Reb Chaim Heller, um, definitely one of the most fascinating and unique individuals uh, in the rabbinic world of the 20th century. Um, he grew up in Bialystok in Poland, and he was a a rare genius, uh, not 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 a textbook genius, not a not a biography genius. He was a genuine, bona fide uh, genius. From all the descriptions about him, it seems that he was something uh, truly exceptional. And he never really was in a formal yeshiva. And, and from the age of ten, he outgrew any teacher he had. The family lived in Warsaw. He was exposed to some of the great people of his generation at a young age, to the Beis HaLevi, um, Rabbi Sikachon Inspector, the Nitziv. He knew Reb Chaim Brisker as a young child. He knew um, 
other other great uh, future and, and contemporary rabbis in the uh, Lithuanian and Polish world. Eventually, he leaves Poland and he goes to study in Germany and he receives a doctorate from Würzburg University. So he rounds out his education to not only be the top in the rabbinic world, but he um, was had that doctorate. But then he goes back to Poland and he gets a rabbinical position in Lomja. He becomes the Lomja Rav. He leaves after a very short time, after just a few weeks. It's not clear why he left. Uh, you know, some some possibly because he wasn't excited about the prospect, which he just found out that his father-in-law had kind of bought him the position of rabbi. Uh, possibly it was because he didn't want to be pushed into positions that he would have to, that he would be pressured to take because of the Balabatim in town. He used to say, uh, that you should find the favor in the eyes of God and then find the favor in the eyes of man. And the priority is to find favor in the eyes of God. So, so what he eventually does, he moves to Berlin in Germany and he founds a very unique institution, which I don't know if there's any institution like that in Jewish history, called the Beis Medrash Ha'elyon, and it was for young, brilliant Talmidei Chachavim. And the idea was to give tools to young Talmidei Chachavim to combat Bible criticism. And the major thrust of most of his life, his writings, his lecturing, his research, was to combat Bible criticism. And he felt that the whole field of, of Bible criticism has deficiencies on both sides. The ones who are the Bible critics, they don't have a proficient knowledge of Tanakh, of Shas, whereas the ones who are defending against the Bible criticism, they don't have they don't have proficiency in Semitic languages, in Arabic, in Biblical Hebrew, in Aramaic, uh, and, 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 uh, and philosophy, and the classics, and other stuff like that. So he wanted to create an institution where it would, it would be everything. There would be a huge emphasis on Tanakh, it would teach regular Tyra also, and Semitic languages, philosophy, classical languages, and it would be very well-rounded. It would give them the tools to fight Bible criticism, to combat it. He wrote Sfarim on a, an array of topics, his his uh, Sefer Amitzvah and the Rambam, the re- new translation, the new work that he did was so perfect and so well done and that that people they were they, they became instantly popular the Chavetz Chaim himself allegedly said that the the only Sefer Hamitzvahs that it's possible to now use is Reb Chaim Heller's Sefer Hamitzvahs his knowledge was was absolutely phenomenal you know great people who know him some of the great Gedalei Hadar who knew him testified that he knew everything he knew Kala Tarekula from Tanakh down to the last and latest Achran of recent times. His memory was, he had a total and perfect recall of everything. I mean, the amount of descriptions that I've seen of him and, and that are, you know, pretty well known and, and, you know, accessible makes it sound like he was truly something unique and not just a, a regular description of someone who is, who happens to be a little smart. It's something, you know, absolutely outstanding. And um, he made it look so easy, even. You know, he would express surprise when people would be 
amazed by it, by his knowledge and his clarity and his memory and his incisiveness and his analysis. And he's like, he would be like, what's the big deal? Of course, being in Berlin wasn't a great place to be in the 1930s. So in 1937, the Nazis had already risen to power a few years before. He escapes Germany, arrives in the United States. He continues his research projects there. He continues lecturing there. He was a very popular people, you know, standing room only or packed audiences for a series of lectures that he gave in in in, in uh, different uh, forums. Um, he uh, in refuting Bible criticism. Um, he would debate uh, others and other people's research in the field. Um, big crowds would come and attend uh, and attend his lectures. Um, well, someone who attended his lecture actually during the time in the United States was the the national poet of uh, the rising nationalism in Palestine, eventually to become the state of Israel, was a very popular individual named Chaim Nachman Bialik, and he was in the United States then. And he said he he attended one of his lectures, and he said the Jewish people need to nationalize uh, Reb Chaim uh, Heller. He's someone who who belongs to the Jewish people. Um, he was he was uh, so it was during this time that he started to give classes and shiurim at yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzchak on a variety of subjects, some of them standard Gemara subjects, and some of them on other more unique areas of Torah. They were very popular, very well attended, and they kept on asking him to come and do more, and he accommodated. So he became, early on in those 1940s and 50s, he died in 1960, so he was around for quite a bit of time in America, for over 20 years, and during that time he gave, for uh, quite a few years, regular shiurim and lectures on all different types of topics, to the students at Rabbeinu Yitzhak al-Khanani. He was also involved with the OU for a while. Um, he gave shiurim and Tanakh open to the public. Uh, he was very personable. I mean, ironically, uh, you know, even though he's a genius, sometimes geniuses have a stereotype that they're not very personable. He was a very warm person, a very caring person. He gave financial assistance to a lot of people. He was a very incredible individual. He died on Erev Pesach, in 1960, and um, despite the fact that it's a busy time, Erev Pesach, he had a quite a large funeral, and Rav Soloveitchik, who's the next person we'll get to, he was in Boston. He flew in from Boston, and he uh, gave the main hespid, which was an incredible piece by Rav Soloveitchik, and also well-known uh, of that hespid that he gave, uh, for Reb Chaim Heller, make, you know, making a very big statement about what he meant, and uh, and um, I remember recently I was in the United States and I gave a tour in the Mount Judah Cemetery. So you, you noticed we saw that Reb Yaakov Kamenetsky's kever is right next to Reb Chaim Heller in the Mount Judah Cemetery, and in fact, Reb Yaakov was very excited when he found out that the plot that he had gotten and and. Uh, uh, was going to be that he's going to have the privilege to be buried next to Chaim Heller. So, and they all had this uh, view of him, and that leads us right into Rav Salvechik himself, who his yard site was just um, yesterday and Yudches uh, Nisan. So, in fact, you know, the Rav, Rav Salvechik always said that his only Rebbe that he ever had was his father, his own father, Ramesha Salvechik. In the closest 
person that he that he had that was like a Rebbe, that was like his his Rebbe was Reb Chaim Heller. He had that was the closest thing that we could call to Reb Soloveitchik's Rebbe, aside from his own father, was Reb Chaim Heller. He got very close with him when he was in Berlin, in the University of Berlin. So, like I said, Reb Chaim Heller was in Berlin then and had this uh, yeshiva institution, the base Medrash Elyon. So Reb Soloveitchik got very close with Reb Chaim Heller then. I remember uh, years ago, I was a young bacher in the Mir Yeshiva. So, Cholomay Pesach, one year, they, I don't remember which year, I should have, I should have looked up when this, when this came out, but the documentary on, on Rav Salvechik's life, I think it was called The Lonely Man of Faith. So the premiere was at the Gris Kail in Yerushalayim in Bayat Vigan. And I gave myself a Cholomay trip and I went to see the premiere. So I remember that the, uh, and it was part of Cholomay Pesach was there of Salvechik's yard site. So we'll focus a little bit on, you know, he's a lot to say and a lot to talk about, and we'll, we'll probably get back to him in his own episode or maybe even more than one at one point. And now just touch on it a little bit in the context of him being a the Rebbe, the Rosh Hashiva of YU for many, many years. Um, so we'll focus a little bit on his early years. You know, he in many ways was a brisker. He came from the brisker family. Um, he had his own twist, not not a regular brisker, probably because of his Feinstein yichus, because of his mother, Rebetzin Pesha, who came from, who she was Rebellia Feinstein, Rebellia Prusiner, um, his, her, her daughter. So he had that side to him also, but on the Soloveitchik side, he was a brisker in learning, in his thought, in certain mannerisms. There's many things about him that he was a brisker, but ironically, he never actually lived in brisk. He visited occasionally as a child, and he he interacted many times in learning and in other things with his grandfather, Reb Chaim Brisker. He was one of the oldest grandchildren, maybe the oldest, I don't remember, uh, some of his cousins might have been a drop older, but he definitely had a, a very nice relationship with his grandfather, but that was all from visits and correspondence also. He never actually lived in Brisk. He was born in Prujan, um uh, by his other grandfather when his his father, Amesha Salvechik, was living in uh, Prujan by Rebellia Prujaner. And um and uh and then he grew up in Ryson and then Chaslevich Chas, in Warsaw and then he was in Berlin and then in America. So he never actually lived in Brisk and interestingly enough, his father, Amesha Salvechik, almost almost never lived in Brisk for a short time because he actually grew up in Valazhin when Reb Chaim Brisker was still a Rebbe in Valazhin when that was around. And it was only afterwards that he lived for a couple of years in Brisk before he got married, his, even his father. So the, the the idea of being a Brisker or not a Brisker is not limited to a geographic location. It's not the idea of living in a place. You know, Menachem Begin grew up in Brisk, so technically he was a bigger Brisker. But when we talk about being a Brisker, it doesn't mean... Living in the uh, in the actual city, it's the idea of a, a you know a lot of cultural baggage um, of what it comes along with. So he he like I said, um, and his father was a rebbe in Warsaw, so he has started going to school in Warsaw, Rav Solveitchik, and but eventually moved along to Berlin to the University of Berlin, and he eventually writes a doctorate. On, on neo-Kantian philosophy of the 
the uh, philosophy in, in, in light of, uh, of, of uh, Immanuel Kant. So since I know nothing about philosophy in general, and um, especially Kantian philosophy, so we'll leave that just at that. That's what his doctorate was about. Um, and that's what something that, that he was very knowledgeable in, in general in philosophy. And, and in 1932, he was already married by then, he, I think, I think Reb Chaim Eiser Grzynski, he got married in Vilna, and I believe Reb Chaim Eiser Grzynski was his Masada Kedushin, and a year later, he moves to America. He moves to the United States. His father had already come earlier, he was already the Rashiva in Rabbi and he moves to America, he becomes a Rav in Boston. Now, later on, I spoke to um, a couple of uh, students of Rav Salvechik who described a very unique experience of during the summer months when he was in Boston full-time, because while he wasn't in session, so there was a small group of Talmidim who would come up to Boston and be with him, and he would teach them, and he said he sometimes gave shiurim outdoors during the summer in Boston for eight hours at a time. Now, I mean, I just, I, I get, I, I start getting nervous just hearing that. You know, I try, when I feel, when I give one of these sound bites and I go uh, 25 minutes or a half hour, I feel like I went 10 minutes overtime and it's too long and people are going to bug out listening to this. And then I think about how people listen to him for eight hours. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's more about, it's more praise of him that he was able, capable of giving a shear for eight hours or the people were actually able to listen for eight hours. But either way, the point I'm trying to make is that was, that was in the later years in Boston when he was already the famous Rav Solveitchik and he had Talmidim following him up for the summer and he was able to give them in-depth shiurim for eight hours. In the beginning years, it was the, it was in the trenches of, of the American rabbinate, which was not an easy time. You know, he had to deal with the kashras issues. He was dealing with the shuls, his different rabbinical responsibilities. He encountered the what he called the amaratsis, the ignorance of, of many American Jews at the time. He recalled officiating at a chuppah where the chassan did not know if he was a kayan, a levi, or a yisrael. He recalled the president of one of the shuls in Boston reading the newspaper on Purim night during the Megillah reading. And he's out there in the in the communal efforts to improve Kashrus, which was, you know, they never made it easy. It was always it was always a fight and they 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 maliciously um maligned him for and they tried to, they tried to get the IRS to audit him and 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 they weren't nice to him and many rabbis uh, experienced similar uh, experiences at the time and it wasn't wasn't easy being in the American rabbinate he founds um the Maimonides school which was to save Yiddishkeit it was one of the first orthodox day schools in America and for sure outside the New York area it was the first one in New England and this was going to be the his investment ultimately was going to be in education, starting with a place like Maimonides before he even gets to Rabbeinu's Gokhanan. And he, he, um, he, he makes all kinds of innovations in this school to be able to save Yiddishkeit, such as having school on Cholomayr, because he felt that the, a lot of these children come from non-observant homes and they're never going to see a lulav. They're never going to daven halal. 
They're never going to eat in a sukkah unless the school provides it for them. And he did all kinds of things like that to give them a real uh, taste for Yiddishkeit. He himself sometimes would give classes to children. Um, he sometimes hosted it in his house when the school building didn't work out. He even started a, eventually Maimonides had a high school, but he even started a yeshiva there, which lasted for a very short time. It was called after his grandfather, Heichal Rabbeinu Chaim Halevi, after Chaim Brisker. He eventually made a deal with Revel that it became an official branch of Rabbeinu Yisko Chanan. It eventually closed down once Rev Revel and his father, Ramesha Salvechik, died, and he himself went down to New York uh, to become the Rebbe in so the yeshiva in Boston didn't last, but it was there for a year or two or so, and he becomes the Rebbe in YU um, following his father's passing. He becomes the main Rebbe, the principal teacher. He gives this, also the Smicha Shiur. I remember Herschel Schechter, he, he, uh, he told me once that, um, that, um, that, that he got frustrated during a, that, that Rev Salvage got frustrated during a Shiur, uh, a chulen shir, yeridei shir, to the smicha students there, that they didn't know something or another that he was asking in the shir. And he said, how could you guys not know this? Do you understand that the walls here of this base medrash already know yeridei? We've taught so much yeridei that even the walls know it. So you guys better know it also. Um, he, What's interesting is is that he was a world Jewish leader. He was a community rabbi. He was a Paisic in the RCA. He had many, many other positions of leadership in the Jewish world. He was the, officially the president of the Mizrahi, which is a whole topic of discussion about his positions on Zionism, which we did discuss a little bit in the series of the rabbis and the Zionists, and we'll probably get back to when we have, hopefully in the future, another episode but he had many positions of leadership in the Jewish world. But how did he see himself? He saw himself as a teacher. He saw his position in Rabbi Yisrael and YU as teaching Talmidim, as teaching students, as giving shiurim. And that was his main purpose and his main goal and how he mainly and principally saw himself. So that, that was his, uh, his, uh, the main part of his career. Interesting, he, in the 1930s still, when he was just after he had arrived in Boston, 1935, he almost got the position of chief rabbi of Tel Aviv and made his one and only visit to Israel, to Eretz Yisrael at the time. Um, he eventually, Moshe Vigdar Amil, got the job as the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. Rosalvechik did not get it. But while he was in Israel, he gave a shir in Merkaz Harav, in the yeshiva. Rav Kook was still alive at the time. Um, he never made it back to visit Eretz Yisrael again, although he was offered the position of uh, chief rabbi of the state of Israel in, I think, the 1950s, if I'm not mistaken, the 1960s maybe. So that was uh, that's also another interesting uh, added on uh, footnote. We'll move on, just wrap it up. The last couple of minutes, it's already um, um, getting getting late. But just to mention another forgotten individual who... Um, in the early, early, early years of Rabbeinu Yitzchel Hanan, he played a role, and he played a role in so many things. And we're talking about Rabbi Dr. Hillel Hakoyen Klein. And uh, he was a, a fascinating person who so accomplished so much. There was in a... Um, 
He was Hungarian. He learned in Preshburg in the Chassam Sefer's yeshiva. After, now the Chassam Sefer wasn't alive, it was already his descendants. He later learned in Eisenstadt by Rebezriel Hildesheimer, which was already a rabbinical seminary that combined rabbinical studies with secular studies. He spent some time in the University of Vienna, and while he was there, he gave shiurim in the famous Schiffschule in Vienna. He later moves with Rebezriel Hildesheimer to with the rabbinical seminary to Berlin. He gets smicha and a doctorate uh, from the University of Berlin. He became uh, a rabbi in Kiev. He was a tutor for the, the son of, of Israel Bratsky, the famous uh, and wealthy industrialist who donated a kail in Valazhin, which is also a whole story, the Bratsky kail. He later becomes, this Rav Hill Klein becomes the Rav in Libau in Latvia, and because of his doctorate, because of his de- degree, so the Russian Tsar's government recognized him as the official rabbi also. So he was one of the few people in the Russian Empire who was the Rav Mitam, meaning the government-recognized crown rabbi, as it was known, and also the traditional rabbi. The Jews of the community saw him as the rabbi also. He was able to fill both roles. From there he goes to New York. In 1890 he arrives in New York, and he becomes the assistant to the then, the one and only in New York's history, the Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef, RJJ. Rabbeinu Jacob Joseph was originally the Magad uh, in Vilna, and he was the chief rabbi of New York City. So he becomes Rabbeinu Yaakov Yosef's assistant. He's involved in the kashra supervision. He organizes the kashra system. He tries to, at least in New York City, he tries to, he fights for better working conditions for the Shaykhtim, who were overworked and underpaid. And in the context of Pesach, which is right now we're in the middle of Pesach, so there was a matzah bakers strike in New York City in 1911, and he supported the matzah bakers. But there was going to be a matzah shortage, not only in New York City, but most of the matzah bakeries of the United States were located in New York City, so there was going to be a shortage across America. And he was able to mediate with the matzah bakers to get them to end the strike. And luckily there was enough uh, matzah that year Pesach. This year there are a couple of shortages. In Israel there was an egg shortage. In the United States I think there was other shortages. So they those that year there was a matzah shortage. And he was able to alleviate that issue also. Uh, he was married to a granddaughter of Rav Shamshin or Fal Hirsch. So he was really connected everywhere. He became the rabbi in the Ohab Tzedek uh, Shul, which was originally on the Lower East Side, and later moved to the Upper West Side. He founds in New York City the Agudas Shemri Shabbos to promote Shabbos observance, which in the 1890s was a losing battle, but he, he with two prominent New York uh, rabbis, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Drachman, who was a famous, fascinating individual also, and Reverend Pereira Mendez, who was also a, a, a New York legend at the time, and he was perceived by the reform in 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 uh, the reform movement establishment as a big threat because here he was with a university degree graduate from the University of Berlin. He was articulate. He was educated. He wasn't a backwards Orthodox rabbi, which is how they how they were trying to paint the Orthodox rabbinate. And in fact, Isaac Mayer Wise, who was the leading reform rabbi in America at the time. He challenged him publicly. He said, I don't believe that you really have a doctorate. I don't believe your academic credentials. So Rabbi Klein provides him with a copy publicly. This is over the, the, in the media, um, with a copy of his diploma 
to show that he had a doctorate. I'm not even sure if Isaac Mayer Wise had a doctorate. I tried to look, find out. I'm not sure. I, I could be he did. I don't know if he did. But either way, um, Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Klein definitely did. So we get to his involvement with Rabbi Yitzchak This is a fledgling institution at the time. This is 1902. It's only six years after its official founding in 1896. It's a fair, relatively new uh, yeshiva, and it was still bouncing around from shul to shul. did not have a building of its own on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And he becomes the president in 1902 of Yeshiva Zerbeni And he makes three major accomplishments for this young yeshiva that really put it on its footing. And he deserves the credit for that for what he did for building this place. First of all, by 1904, only two years after he becomes president, he arranges for them to have its own building. He said it needs to have dignity. If it's bouncing around from shul basement to shul basement, then no one's ever going to respect this place. It needs to have its own building, and he got it its own building. That was accomplishment number one. So the first building they got was was arranged by him. He also made a clear line of distinction between Yeshiva Srebrenica Kolchanan and the Jewish Theological Seminary, which, believe it or not, had to be made in those days. The seminary was still officially Orthodox, and he made the distinction, made the difference that this is a Yeshiva, this place, the seminary, is heading towards a different direction, and we have to make the clear line of separation. And the third thing that he does is, in 1906, he starts the Smicha Board, of Yerbeni Yitzchakhanan, together with other Rebbeim and Rabbanim in New York, including Ramaz, Ramachis of Margolius. And he gave smicha to the first groups of rabbis of graduates in Yerbeni Yitzchakhanan. He resigned from his presidency in 1908, but he continued to be the one who gave smicha until his death in 1926. So he's someone who, literally the first rabbis, the first generations of rabbis in America were his musmachim, um, of Orthodox rabbis were his musmachim, um, uh, who he who he did in that capacity. That's he didn't wasn't limited just to Rabbi Yitzchak He was one of the, during the World War One. He was a, the founder of the Central Relief even before the Joint was founded. He headed the Hungarian Kailul Shemer Hachaymais office in New York for the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim. He found one of the founders of Ezra's Tyra. He was one of the founders of Agudis Yisrael in America during its early and failed attempt, which after he died, it fell apart. And Aguda in America only um, was able to get off the ground much later. But he uh, started the first uh, first round. The shul that he was in also was a place of distinction. The Obsedic shuls, the Chazan in those days was the famous Chazan Yassel Rosenblatt. So it also was famous not just because of him. He was involved with the Agudas, with Agudas Rabbanim. There was pretty much nothing that he wasn't involved with, and Rabbi Yitzchak was just one of them. So this was a little bit about the next installment of uh, YU Rebbeim. This is Yudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and hopefully soon tours and trips. Stay safe and healthy. You can si- subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.